0: And welcome to another edition of Book Talk. I'm Stephen Ussery, and I'm happy to welcome William Hazelgrove to the program today. William has written over 20 books, including Madam President, The Secret Presidency of Edith Wilson, and Al Capone and the 1933 World's Fair. Today we'll be talking about his most recent title, Greed in the Gilded Age, The Brilliant Con of Cassie Chadwick, which is published by Roman and Littlefield. William, it seems like in my 20 years of doing interviews for Book Talk, I've talked to quite a few authors writing about any number trials of the century. How did you come across the trial of Cassie Chadwick?
1: You know, I was looking around on the internet, and I stumbled over an article on her. She really was the media sensation of her time. And suddenly, I found thousands of articles on her, and I started to stitch the story together. Oh, there's no books. There was one in 1970 on her that was mostly almost sort of like fiction, but there was really no books at all on her. So I realized that newspapers would be my resource, just started to put this story together that, like you say, would become the trial of the century together through all these newspaper articles.
0: So the quality of newspaper reportage back then kind of inconsistent. So, how do you know which? of those reports to trust more than another one that might have a conflicting set of facts?
1: Uh, great question. Actually, uh, what you would do is uh, you would compare a lot of these newspapers. And, you know, the writing at that time was really bad, was a lot of it was sort of like yellow journalism, you know, very Citizen Kane-esque in terms of just, they would stretch the truth. You know, I'm not a big person on punctuation, but theirs was just, I mean, their, their sentence structures were hilariously bad. But in terms of the content, what I would do is I would compare all these different papers and you would start to see, okay, this is probably true and not true. You know, like this pans out, this doesn't. I wrote a book called Henry Knox's Noble Train. And in that book, I had the same issue. And this took place in the 18th century, where I had to go off a lot of newspaper articles, a lot of old diaries, and a lot of things contradicted each other. So the point you have to say, what makes sense? What's the thing that really makes the most sense to the story and what's logical? And with Cassie Chadwick, again, she was such a media sensation. I mean, she kicked Teddy Roosevelt's inauguration, you know, off the front page. She was, you know, just this incredible sensation for media at the time because by claiming she was illegitimate daughter of Andrew Carnegie and being of the one percent. You know, sex and money, and just this fascination with this class of people. It was a newspaper's dream, and the circulations for these papers just went way up.
0: It seems like American media has kind of returned to that place of highly partisan media atmosphere with concentration on sex and things like that.
1: Oh, yeah. You know, it's all eyeballs, right? It's what people will read. I mean, I like the New York Times, but it's not the New York Times of before. It's a lot of opinion pieces. It's almost like a blog. You know, you read the front page of it and half of its opinion pieces and not on heavy duty subjects either. And this is on the front page of the Times. So, you know, Hemingway had a great quote where he said, in the end, the age was handed the kind of that was demanded. I mean, this is very true. You know, the age has a certain demand and people fulfill it. So, and certainly media is is always about selling, be it newspapers, television, whatever. So, you know, there is that component. Now, the good thing about media, you know, I did a I just did a book on Titanic as well where I used newspapers quite a bit and my thesis was really controversial, but I backed it up because I had all these different newspaper articles with interviews from passengers and crew that all matched up. So in that way, it's a great fact checker because these people could not coordinate stories. Mm-hmm. And they all were talking to different reporters.
0: Well, let's get into the story and greet in Greeting the Gilded Age. Let's meet a few of the people involved in the tale. First up, we have Elizabeth Bigley. What was her life in Canada like?
1: You well, know, poor girl, father worked for the railroad, a little strange. They said she had spells, quote unquote, where she would kind of go into another world and wouldn't talk. She had a lisp. She was a little deaf in one ear, but she had this real yearning for fine things. And at a very, very early age in Canada, she um, took a little business card into town and put on it that she was an heiress due to inherit $15,000. And she went into a bank and lo and behold, came out with a credit line. And she went all over town and, and this is when she's maybe 20, you know, Ate in restaurants, bought all sorts of clothes, stayed in a hotel. I mean, when they caught up with her, the bank started to cross check the information. They found out that, you know, she wasn't who she said she was. She was in a hotel. So, I mean, and she got caught and put on trial there for that very first crime. But so she was a a person who really wanted more. And I don't know if your listeners have been watching Inventing Anna or not on uh, Netflix. But, you know, that's the story of Anna Delvey, who is very similar in terms of a modern story, where she created this whole fantasy, being from a very rich parent, having very rich parents. This is really Cassie Chadwick, or rather Elizabeth Bigley. In, you know, her early days, is that she really sort of fantasized about being just this immensely wealthy person.
0: Next up, we have another person who... Wanted to be extremely wealthy, but somehow achieved it through, at the time, somewhat legal means, and that's Andrew Carnegie.
1: So Carnegie's very interesting because you know he was in a Scottish immigrant, came to this country with nothing, worked his way up, created American Steel, the richest man in the world. I try and run the in the book, "Greed in the Gilded Age," the brilliant kind of Cassie Chadwick. I try and run these two stories parallel, so we can kind of see similarities between these two you know i would point out they they both were ruthless they both wanted money any way they could get it obviously carnegie created this humongous company but carnegie also was a sort of philosophical man who had this basic question of why he should have so much when others had so little so he took a year off and and wrote a book called wealth where basically he came to it and said you know it's not that I worked that hard, because he didn't. He only worked like four hours a day. And it wasn't that I was that talented. It was that I was at the right place at the right time. And so his view was money was really a matter of luck and circumstance, that some people ended up with just millions and millions of untaxed dollars, which is you know what the Gilded Age is all about, and other people had nothing. You kind of put that into what Cassie Chadwick's attempting to do, who, after her trial, in um, Canada, she gets banished basically to America and goes and lives with her sister. Well, she comes into the Gilded Age of America, there's just opulence untold, and also has this feeling of there's gold around the next corner, and she wants to find that gold. So these two individuals are sort of circulating around in the same universe at this point.
0: You do point out that while what he did may have been legal in a lot of ways, it definitely was not moral.
1: You know, Carnegie was a kind of man who um, he didn't think he was making enough money off his mills. So he decided to cut all the wages of the workers. Well, the workers all struck. And so then he put up a big fence around his mills and locked them all out and hired Pinkertons. And this is the homestead mills. And when the people tried to come back, he wouldn't let them back into the mill And this devolved into basically him hiring up the equivalent of troops, you know, shooting down a lot of these people. And this really came from the fact that he felt he wasn't making enough. I mean, here's a man who's probably one of the richest men in the world, and he's like, "Nah, you know what? I want even more." So, you know, this is sort of the black mark on Carnegie, who through philanthropy, a lot of people have a warm fuzzy about him, but. He was a very strange man of all these contradictions. He wasn't even five foot tall. He looked like a little Santa Claus with a beard. He really stepped away from his mills at a pretty early age and from, you know, he sold it all off to JP Morgan. And that did make him the richest man in the world. So he's sort of circulating around. He has this idea that it's their job as the anointed. He's very Darwinian to give away all his money to those less fortunate, but he's not sure how to do it. So he's starting to build libraries for people, communities. In fact, out where I live, there's a town next to me who has a Carnegie Library. You know, he wants to sort of educate the masses. He also wants to see himself as a literary man now because that was sort of his fantasy to be a learned man, not just this capitalist. And so again, this is the person who Cassie's gonna lock onto for her biggest con.
0: Memphis is a town without a Carnegie Library. Because there was another philanthropist at the time, Frederick Cossett, who put out a couple of libraries around the country, and Memphis happened to get one of those instead of a Carnegie
1: library. Wow, oh, interesting.
0: You really do kind of dig into this he's short business. I mean, it's all throughout the book. It's just like you're just like needling them all the way through about this.
1: Yeah. Well, because I mean, I think it's used as an omnipotent figure in his time and in history. Of course, the classic scenes when he comes into the courtroom. When he's pulled into there by Cassie Chadwick's, well, actually the prosecutor, you know, this is a big media moment, um, right? So Cassie Chadwick has accused him of being her father and saying she's the illegitimate daughter of Andrew Carnegie. This is the basis of her con is that she's the illegitimate daughter and she's going to inherit all of this money. When they get to head the trial, he gets subpoenaed. He comes. All the reporters are ready. He walks in. And everybody is just stunned at how this little guy, a little man with this big beard, came in to the courtroom and just sort of walks across and sits down. And and that's it. You know, the heavens didn't open up or anything like that. But, yes, he is. He's a short guy.
0: (laughs) So what are your thoughts about the tech titans of today and the huge fortunes they have, which exceed even – adjusted for inflation, what Carnegie and J.P. Morgan and Rockefeller had back then. What are your thoughts about that kind of income inequality that we're living with today?
1: Well, you know, it's really not that different. You know, the 1% of of the Gilded Age, who were sort of the first mega titans of our country, that was a very class-driven society at that point. The Different classes didn't mingle. If you were rich in the 1%, you did not mingle with the lower classes. And today, we're much more egalitarian in our, at least in lip service to that. But we definitely have this ruling class, this oligarchy of mega, uber wealthy people who are billionaires. And so, you know, they sort of still live in that bubble that the 19th century nineteenth uh, century uh, equivalent of billionaires lived in as well. And I'm not sure how much contact today people in that class would have with With people below them. You know, what's interesting about the 19th century when this first class came about was this was the first time that people were selling their time for money. Wage slaves was the term, you know, because after the Civil War, all these markets opened up, national markets, and they were moving all these goods to market. So for the first time, people were working in big mills and factories and making people they had never seen before rich. And so, you know, you had the 400 in the 19th century, you had the 400 richest families, and they always called them the 400. And of course, this show The Gilded Age that's been on really shows as well how they, they all sort of lived in this very refined world and where they went to these opulent parties. There's actually a party given by a Vanderbilt where everybody dressed up like British aristocracy and just... Partied all night long. People got so drunk that they ended up walking home in the morning down Fifth Avenue. They were all dressed like, you know, people from the 17th century with stockings and all this and wigs. And people were just amazed, you know, that this class of people who who are now sort of trying to fashion themselves like the British aristocracy. So, I mean, here we are, this country that came, you know, came to America to create this supposedly classless society where we're all the same because we don't want what the British had. And yet, you know, we developed this uber class of people who pretty much want what the British have, and that is to be the ruling class. Which you can make an argument going up through the East Coast, the power band that runs through Wall Street to Washington still exists.
0: And you do point out Mark Twain's intent on calling it the Gilded Age because beneath the thin veneer of a a gold leaf or paint, it's just regular old
1: stuff. Twain was brutal on that, and uh, it's such a great metaphor for the age. Of course, he wrote a book called *The Gilded Age*, and yeah, it's a patina on the rotten wood underneath. And I think one reason he drew this illusion was because he saw these these new robber barons, as they were called, or just these uber-rich men. It's fairly common people who had amassed these immense fortunes in record time. I mean, it was just you know from 1865 that I would say the Titanic sinking. I kind of put that at the end of the Gilded Age, there's just so much money created for so few people. And they weren't cultured people, they weren't highly educated people, they were just people who happened to get all this money. And so Twain just saw this as just these sort of common folks who put on these fine airs and, you know, yet underneath were about common as dirt. And also too, you know, we had the election of 1876 where the election was sort of thrown, the presidential election corruption was sort of weaving its way through all elements of society at this time
0: it was funny i went onto to wikipedia to see the list of current wealthiest people in america and someone had since wikipedia is editable someone had changed elon musk's name to morbius the cartoon vampire
1: <laughs> oh, funny <laughs> well you know he's a great example because i you know when i read about him i think i do think about carnegie and jp morgan and these these men of the uh, 19th century, uh, who you know did exactly what Musk is doing, you know, they corner the market, buy up everything, take over companies, consolidate the railroads. I mean, J.P. Morgan bought the United States of America when we were on the gold standard, and you know, this is something. Uh, Grover Cleveland was president. The government was running out of money. We were when we were on the gold standard. All the money had to be based on gold that was actually in the vault, right? Well, we were out, and America was going to default on its debt. And so J.P. Morgan met with uh, Cleveland in a railroad car and said, look, I'll I'll bail you out, but it's going to cost you, and this is what I want. And he did. He did. So, you know, in that way, he bought the United States, you know, and, and that influence. I mean, what's interesting to me is that everything that happens today, from the riots to Black Lives Matter, to the frustration people have, to Trumpism, everything. Everything can be traced back to somewhere in the Gilded Age when America coalesced into an economic urban superpower. It's all there. The seeds of all those things are back there.
0: Now let's go back to our cast of characters. Who is Mrs. Alice Bastado?
1: Oh, it's Cassie Chadwick. You know, she would change her name. Actually, Elizabeth Bigley. She would change her name as she saw fit. And this is at a time when you had no social security number. You had no IDs. You could just become somebody else. And so when she came to America, she changed her name to Alice Bastado, And she basically became Madame de Vere as well, who was a uh, clairvoyant. Miss Bastado was another Irish heiress. And she used that non-diploma for uh, a gentleman, Dr. Springsteen who she suckered into marrying her, who on the night of his wedding, all the creditors showed up at his doors because she'd been out spending like crazy. And he had her investigated and and basically kicked her out 10 days later. So, you know, she was always changing her identity. And you know, it's, a, it's a very fascinating thing too with America at that time is that you could basically remake yourself very easily. Today, it's harder to do. But at this time, you could change your name, become somebody else, and there was very little ways people could track you down. I mean, when Cassie Chowett got sent to prison twice, the second time she went back, they weren't quite sure who she was of all her aliases. And, you know, it wasn't like they went to some computer database. Somebody recognized her at prison and said, oh yeah, that's Elizabeth Bigley. So, you know, this seems very arcane to us, but you think about it, I mean, social security networks didn't come into the New Deal, right? Which was in the 30s. It was
0: really interesting that, of her many aliases, that Madame De Vere, at least in that persona, she is providing something, you know, be it hokum about people, their relatives on the other side, maybe even a little bit of sex work along there. So at that point, she was actually giving people some value for money, as opposed to her later cons. Can you kind of give us an idea of how these cons worked of just saying, here's a piece of paper, give me a lot of money?
1: All right, so let's talk about her con with Carnegie because it kind of is the boilerplate she used. Okay, so what what she basically did was with Carnegie was she created trust documents, very sophisticated trust documents. She wasn't stupid, and so then she went to New York. She met a lawyer named James Dillon. She said to him, "Will you take me to my father's house?" She gives him directions, standing about Fifth Avenue in front of Carnegie's mansion. Dillon's mouth drops open. She goes, "I'll be right up," and she goes into Carnegie's mansion kills some time with a maid, maybe 20 minutes, comes back out and drops the trust documents at Dylan's feet. And Dylan's a well-connected financial lawyer. He picks up, she goes, I gotta tell you something. You can't tell anybody. I'm the illegitimate daughter of Andrew Carnegie. He's like, oh, oh yeah, She's like, I'm gonna inherit all his fortune. You can't tell anybody. Well, of course he tells everybody. So what she does then is she would go from that point, she went to the Way Park Bank, a guy named Ira Reynolds. And she had a package, and she said to Ira Reynolds, This is full of Carnegie securities. So I have to tell you a story. She tells him the story, and she goes, It's worth $5 million, and I need to let her credit on it. And Ira Reynolds says, Well, I should open up this package. And she says, You don't trust my word. Now, this is a time when there's a lot of deference to women, especially wealthy woman, which she was perceived as, because she had married Dr. Chadwick. We can talk about that, who was a wealthy doctor. And so Ira Reynolds says, You're right. I don't need to see it. I'll give you the letter of credit. So she takes that letter of credit worth five million and then she goes to another bank, the Oberlin Bank. And she goes to the president of that bank and says, you know, I've got this letter of credit, but I've got to tell you a story. So she tells him the same story and they buy it because she now has this paper from another bank and says, you know, I need cash. If you could provide it for me, I will give you the Carnegie fortune. So she holds out the carrot of this vast fortune coming to their bank, and they give her the money. Basically, they give her what they perceive as short-term loans for the big mother loan that's going to come in. And so she plays it like checkers. She goes from one bank to another, using each bank as collateral against the next bank.
0: So it's kind of like cutting checks in a way.
1: Exactly. And it's, it's, a, it's a Ponzi scheme, to use the 1920s comparison, in that each bank backs up the loan for the next bank, but no bank really holds any funds. So they're all saying, well, Ira Reynolds sort of set the, the bar by giving her this letter of credit, but she uses that for bank after bank after bank after bank, getting millions of dollars in cash from these banks spending it all over the place and then going to say another bank in New York and saying, I have you know, this credit from here, I got this letter credit from here and I'm gonna tell you a story, tell them the story. She even used it on a, a wealthy pastor who was sort of the pastor to the rich, to so JP Morgan and all these people, very well connected. And she went and told him her tragic story and said, you can't tell anybody, but my father's cut me off at Carnegie and uh, I need some short-term cash. So he gives her letters of introduction to all these bankers in New York, where she goes in and he vouches for her and then she gets all this money. Now, like the Oberlin Bank, there's a guy named Beckworth who was the president. And he was a very staid banker who would never take a risk. You know, people said she had hypnotic eyes and that she had um, a very strange air about her. And she had a habit of speaking in a low voice and she had a slight lisp and she was very good looking and had a good figure, and men would sort of lean in close to her. Well, backwards is totally taken in. Not only does he give the entire funds of his bank, he's not a big bank, but he gives her 100000 of his own money. And when it blows up, it's his bank that collapses, and all his investors, who are people he knows, are all out money. And the Oberlin Bank is really the only reason she got caught because this triggered the federal investigation because people were out money. They had, you know, if you and I go to a bank and it goes bad, we'll get 100000 at least for our money. They got nothing. So that's why, really, that's really what's going to be her downfall.
0: And you mentioned Dr. Leroy Chadwick, and this is her third marriage, and she marries a man who is very wealthy, lives on Millionaire's Row in Cleveland, Euclid Avenue. And the fact that that wouldn't be enough for her, that she had to go out and get more, is so interesting.
1: She meets Chadwick, she's Madame de Vere. She has her quote unquote massage parlor and he has bad rheumatism. So he comes in and he's very taken with her. Now his wife has died. He has a daughter and a mother living with him, but he's Dr. Chadwick who lives on Millionaire's Row in Cleveland. And he's renowned, he's uh, one of the pillars of society. She tells him that she has a big fortune in Ireland, seems to be her go-to. And so they date or court. And they get married. You're right. One would think servants, multiple cars, mansion, pretty much she would spend like money like water, go buy all those jewelry, go tell. It takes trips to Europe. You would think this is enough. But what happened is Chadwick realized at a point she was cleaning him out. And so he started these trips to Europe where he'd take his daughter. And he started secretly moving money into Europe funds away from her. And he started to leave longer and longer. And so she was sort of left on her own quite a bit. And this is when the whole Carnegie scheme starts to sort of hatch that she's going to do. I mean, she was a serial con woman. She could not stop being a con woman. It was just in her. But this Carnegie con which I sort of argue is almost a revenge con in the book because she was thrown in jail in the 1890s for a con that went bad where she was sort of left holding the bag and some men really framed her. She got sentenced in nine years. She did three, but she really, and I think it was somewhere in there that she decided I'm not going to be taken advantage of again like this. She really went for the mother load. She really set her sights on the richest man in the country. What's amazing is that when this thing blows up, people aren't quite sure she's not telling the truth. And a lot of people thought she was telling the truth. In fact, these bankers, a lot of them never came forward. They were too embarrassed and they didn't want to run on their bank. And even the bankers who she totally took Beckwourth Bank, the Oberlin Bank, Ira Reynolds, the Wade Park Bank, they said even to the end, they believed that she would make good on the money, that she had it somewhere. And one banker uh, who actually sued her, who kind of made the whole thing unravel, a guy named Newton, he never believed that she was in it alone, that she was smart enough to do it, or had to be a man behind all of it.
0: And don't you think a lot of this came through with people underestimating her because of her gender?
1: Oh, absolutely. That was her ace, if you will. She knew these men would assume she knew nothing. Now, this is a time, too, when banking was pretty corrupt. If you got a loan for thirty thousand, you were expected to kick back maybe three or four right there as a kickback. Interest rates, you could take some of the cleaners. I mean, they they were giving her exorbitant interest rate. They saw her as a mark. They saw her as this woman who was going to inherit this big fortune who didn't know what she was doing. And so they could give her a hundred thousand dollars and maybe she'd kick them back 10, and then they charge her a 20% interest. The kicker was they get the big fortune. So she understood this greed, and she also understood. That as a woman, they would never assume she was going to con them. That she knew enough about banking, and and you read the trust agreements; they're all in the book, and they're all published in the papers too. At the time, they're very sophisticated. These are sophisticated financial documents that she wrote. That the one percent examined these bankers and said, "Oh yeah, these, this is from Andrew Carnegie. You know, this is this is valid." She really had a strange understanding of financial instruments of the late 19th century.
0: There's an old saying that I think applies to both Dr. Chadwick and to all these bankers, and it's marry in haste, repent in leisure, or lend in haste and repent in leisure.
1: (laughs) Yeah, you bring up a great point, and that's this. Bankers could lend on perceived wealth you know, today you and I go get a loan. We have to have our FICOs. We have to have, you know, the credit scores, which are the FICOs. We need to have show income of two years. You have to be able to trace the income. If you're self employed, you have to use tax returns. I mean, it's laborious. It takes three months to close a loan, at least. At this time, you could come in with a lot of diamonds on, have a little card saying you are a wealthy woman of Chicago. And if they thought you were who you said you were, they lent you the money, just saying, you know, I, I can tell you've got the money here. We'll lend you that $50,000. And that's how she got her money. They, they perceived her as a wealthy woman. And then when she became Mrs. Chadwick, it was such a done deal because she was known as the queen of diamonds because she would buy all these diamonds all the time. And so, you know, oh, here comes the wealthy Miss Chadwick. And then they just lavish money on her, and assuming that she was good for it.
0: I did a little bit of YouTube searching on her as well. And I saw several years ago, someone was trying to get a musical about her off the ground.
1: Yeah, you know, it's funny. There's been a lot of efforts to make a movie about her, a musical. And there is a lot of information on her. You do uh, any kind of research on her, you'll see that she pops up. You know, like in the 1930s, there was a story on her. And in the 50s, the 60s, the uh, Smithsonian Magazine did a piece on her early 2000s, she just keeps popping up as sort of a, bet you don't know this story. And people just are are floored they're like, really? She took all this money and she lived this life and then it took all this time to catch up with her. And, you know, when Carnegie came there, there was a moment where he and Cassie locked eyes and he had been um, on this sort of crusade of trying to figure out why, He had all this money. And when he saw her, he realized that they were the same. He saw the same ruthlessness in her that he possessed. And he, I don't know if I'll say respected her, but he he felt that these bankers were real fools to give her money. He respected that she got all that money, that she was able to pull all that money. I mean, when you think about it, she came to America with nothing, nothing, and walked away with millions. That's a very American story, right?
0: Well, the kids say nowadays, game recognizes game.
1: Yes, that's a good one. That's, I like that.
0: <laughs> Do you have another project lined up right now that you're researching?
1: Actually, I have a book coming out next fall called Writing Gatsby, The Real Story of the Greatest American Novel, um, where I really delved into what Scott Fitzgerald went through when he wrote this book on the Riviera. And it's a pretty revealing story that most people haven't heard.
0: That's another tale about American wealth and deception right there.
1: Pretty much, right?
0: I remember he said that to always buy the cheapest house in the best neighborhood.
1: He's a guy, too, who never owned a home. Even when he was a boy, they lived in rented homes. And then as an adult, he lived in rented homes his whole life. He never, ever bought a home.
0: We're looking forward to seeing that when it comes out next year. Absolutely. William, thank you so much for your time. And it was a fascinating tale, well told.
1: Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. Take care now. Thank you.
0: William Hazelgrove is the author of Greed in the Gilded Age, The Brilliant Con of Cassie Chadwick, which is published by Roman and Littlefield. I'm Stephen Usry, and this is Book Talk. Thank you for joining us today. Book Talk is produced in the studios of FM 89.3 WYPL Memphis, a service of the Memphis Public Library, a division of the City of Memphis. Book Talk is copyrighted by the Memphis Public Library